Welcome to the Property Voice Podcast, helping you to navigate safely through the world of property investing. Get the lowdown and updates, insights and outcomes on all matters property with a splash of entertainment along the way. The Property Voice, a voice to trust among the crowd. Now, let's get started with your host, Richard Brown. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always, it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Now we're progressing through the stages of the property investment life cycle. And previously we discussed the first stage, which is the acquire stage of the cycle. And now we're going to move forward to look at the second stage, which is the finance stage of the investment property life cycle. And I'm joined on the show today by Simon Allen from Searchlight Finance. And Simon is an experienced investor himself, as well as being a finance broker specialising in investment property. And we shall explore financing property. And with Simon's help, we'll also gain insights, tips and warnings of what to do and what not to do when looking at investment property financing. So have a listen to my discussion with Simon as we chat through the merits and pitfalls of using a finance broker, how to prepare ourselves for a smooth finance application and how to avoid being blacklisted by a lender. Let's start with my interview with Simon and we can pick up the thread again shortly. Okay, so let's get on with this week's featured topic with Property Chatter. Hi there, Simon. I've got Simon Allen on the the line today. How are you? You good? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. You're more than welcome. It's great great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. So I was just saying that uh, Simon is uh, not only uh, a specialist mortgage broker, which you'll, you can tell you a little bit about in a, in a second, but a rare breed, really, because it also happens to be an investor landlord. So uh, I guess that means you can understand the uh, both sides of the same coin, Simon. Would that be fair? Yes, certainly. I've, I've been an investor landlord now for... 15 years. I've been in property finance for about 25 years. I've run a, a national bridging company, um, which also did development finance as well. And Searchlight has been going um, seven years now. So we started in the middle of the crunch with no clients and no lenders. And uh, we survived and we are FCA regulated and just deal with the investor, landlord and development market and don't do anything else. Fantastic. So it sounds like we've got the right person on. We would like to have what we call a subject matter expert. And uh, I think that uh, criteria criteria sets the scene very well. Do you might know when I set set this call up, uh, Simon, we're we're in the middle at the moment of the investment property life cycle, which sits within the overall series at the moment of, of, of cycles in property. So we're looking at you know individual property financing, I guess, because the um, the four steps that I'm taking you know our listeners through in this series are acquire, finance, undertake any works, and exit as the natural okay. natural cycle within that. So um, I, I guess obviously you're sitting squarely in the finance camp, and I'm sure as the investor landlord you see all of those steps um, from a personal point of view as well. But if we just drill down into the, the financing a little bit, because that's the purpose of this particular episode, can you just talk us through what the main methods that an investor could use to finance property deals? Yes, certainly, Richard. I mean, this I put lenders probably into three categories. So you've got the traditional buy-to-let lenders who are either banks or building societies. They tend to want 
single let property which is habitable and both rentable. Buy to let mortgages usually 75% loan to value. Some will do 80 and one will do 85%. And then you sort of move on then to what I would call sort of multi-let small HMOs where some of those lenders are still in that sector but then you've got like the specialist property lenders. Most of these lenders have only really been around since the credit crunch uh, they're typically the, the challenger banks, um, lenders that are backed by hedge funds etc. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the high street banks to which property is, is very much a dirty word and then you've got like the, the private lenders which include some of the, the bridging lenders some of them may only be sort of putting a, a few million pounds out a year where others will be sort of doing sort of loans which sort of cumulatively are up to a billion pounds so there's, there's a wide range of lenders out there doing short-term finance also known as bridging auction finance and then the long-term loans as well from both the buy to let and the commercial finance side yeah, so you've got a spectrum there, buy-to-let, commercial finance, uh, specialist lending against things like HMO and development financing, and uh, and indeed bridging finance, I guess. And and I guess you, you touch all of those, do you, in your own practice? Yes, yes, we do. If, if, there's, if there's any finance that's required on, on land or bricks and mortar, um, then we've got lenders that will do that. What our clients concentrate on really whether they're going to decide to take a loan is how much are they going to get, what's it going to cost and more importantly something which I think is neglected, the terms and conditions attached to that loan as well because some of them are quite stringent where others are more relaxed. Yeah I'm glad you mentioned that because people often just focus in on headline interest rates don't they and uh, there's, there's a lot more to it than that. <laughs> Oh, no, no, definitely. I mean, interest rates are very, very important, but uh, certainly for things like bridging finance, there's um, several other points that they need to be concentrating on, and you know, interest rate is quite low down the pecking order on that. Mm. So, just if we just take you know those areas of uh, or, you know types of financing, as it were, do you have, in the interest of this recording, we don't have like uh, it's not the idea is not to go into elaborate details, but do you have any headline you know best practices or top tips, perhaps for each of those areas, or even generically if they fall into a generic suite of uh, of headlines that you could perhaps show in our report? No, certainly. I'd, I'd probably put everything in one category apart from bridging. Let's use that as a category on its own. Okay. So certainly when you're looking at bridging, what I would look at is how is that bridging loan going to get repaid and when will that happen and by who. So there's only two ways it can get repaid and that's a sale. So therefore, you've got to let the market have enough time to get that property sold once you've done any work on it. And if you're going down the refinance route, then most lenders won't accept an application until you've owned it six months. So therefore, don't go for a six-month bridging loan because there's no way that it will get repaid. Mm -hmm. Don't just focus on the headline rate. There's other areas to look at, the total costs, how interest is calculated, and more importantly, because lots of bridging loans, unfortunately, do get delayed with the repayment, how is that lender going to look after you if you are late? For example, some will just listen to what you have to say and carry on as normal 
where others will increase the interest rates around about 5% and then backdate it from the beginning of the loan, which just wipes all your oh, equity wow. out. Yeah. So thankfully we don't deal with those lenders, but unfortunately there's plenty of people that we see that do. So certainly bridging, always look at the exit, how it's going to get repaid and then work backwards. For buy-to-let, commercial finance, HMO finance, even limited company finance, it's all very, very similar. Is First of all, the lender will always underwrite you, so make sure you're on the voter's roll, make sure your credit report is accurate, make sure that you monitor your credit report as well. There's three main credit agencies and one of them, uh, Call Credit, have a product called Noddle, N-O-D-D-L-E.co.uk, and it's a free credit report for life, so certainly subscribe to that. And you can also get the statutory reports as well, which cost £2 each mm. from the other two agencies. Make sure your bank statements, because more and more lenders look at these, are working well, which means if you've got an overdraft, keep within the overdraft. They're looking for bounced items, they're looking for pressure, they're looking for how you spend your money, etc. So if you have all that in place, then getting a bank select mortgage is more straightforward because the information is there for the broker or the lender to see. I guess if I can just pause a bit on and you know explore a couple of those ideas a little bit more. If I take uh, you started with bridging, which is probably the last place most people would start, I guess, because uh, the point I'm going to make is a lot of people get scared of bridging. Do you uh, do you think that's valid that people would be scared of bridging and and and, and when would it be wise to use bridging in the first place? I suppose. I would agree that people do get scared of it, especially with some of the horror stories that I've seen. Um, however, it's a tool, and it's, it's like any tool that an investor landlord has access to. It won't always work, but in some cases it works very well. It works predominantly well when you've got a property that you need to buy quickly at auction, because very few buy-to-let buy lenders can complete on a transaction within 28 days. And it also works very well when the property isn't rentable or habitable. So you're doing the refurbishment either to sell or to keep and then remortgage. And the costs are higher. Over the last three to four years, the costs have come down. Uh, with some lenders, the costs are only sort of 2 to 3% higher than a traditional mortgage. And to me, I just class it as, as a cost of acquisition. Would you pay an extra few thousand pounds to get that property if there's sufficient in there when you've done the work or put an extension on etc so certainly a lot of people do use it and they use it very very well yeah it puts you in a cash equivalent buyer position doesn't it really to some extent being, being oh certainly yeah. and you know quite often you you can negotiate decent prices because of that which you know the savings you know pay for the additional costs of bridging but it can be done very very quickly yeah, and I say it's, it's a powerful tool to have if used the right way. Right, and and then on the sort of more gen, generic financing, the buy-to-let, commercial finance, etc., that you were talking about, um, I agree with you. That's why you know you actually made the point very well. The lender's going to underwrite you regardless of uh, whether you've got a limited company in place, unless it's a very well-established limited company, of course. But um, and that's quite a topical theme across right now, limited companies. But um, if they're underwriting you and you're getting yourself prepared, as you suggest, with looking at your credit reports and your bank statements and that sort of thing, what's what sort of time period do lenders look back for typically? In other words, how how 
how far in advance should you get yourself ready is my leading question. Well, certainly the credit report, I would always be reviewing that on a monthly basis because if there is anything wrong, and I think there's a scary statistic, I'm not too sure the exact number, but at least 30%, I think, possibly more of credit reports are incorrect. Oh, right. So if there is something on there, you need to be able to correct it. And lenders usually want the last three months' bank statements. If you're employed, the last three months' pay slips. One thing that's really important and unfortunately catches a lot of people out sort of October, November, December is your tax return. More and more lenders want to see a copy of your tax return. And to lenders, they require it to be completed with the revenue normally within six months of the year. Oh, right, okay. So the end of the tax year. So whilst everybody's got till January before the revenues start getting upset, then the tax returns do expire. So what you really need to do is get that tax return and the information, either to your accountant or if you do it yourself, done really before I'd say the end of August, early September. Otherwise, some of the products that are available uh, won't be available for you, unfortunately. So have your tax return up to date. And certainly if you're an existing investor landlord, more and more lenders are asking for a copy of it and also for a copy of the supporting return behind it as well. The, the SA302, which is the revenues version of your tax return, is what the lenders want, although the revenue have now put similar information online, which you can access, which some lenders do accept. But say, from an information point of view, using bank statements, etc., it's always the last three months before an application they need. If you're looking at buying a specific type of property, by all means, speak to a broker and you know, see how many lenders are out there that are suitable. If you've only got one lender for your circumstances, then that lender changes its policy and you've got a bit of a problem. So you need as many lenders as possible. Well, that's fantastic. In fact, that's one thing I wasn't even aware of myself, I have to say, Simon, about having the uh, the tax return done in advance. I'm, I'm literally just completing my year in tax return now. We're in December. So uh, uh, I think a note to self for next year is to get it to done get it done sooner from based on your up-to-date knowledge of uh, what lenders are looking for. So thanks for that. But you, no problem. You mentioned uh, quite opportunely broker there, and I wanted to ask you, actually, um, you know, Obviously, you are in this camp, so recognise your your personal interest. But you also are a, an investor investor landlord yourself. But what would you say are the merits of dealing with a finance broker? And indeed, are all brokers the same? I are they all are they all equal? Was probably my better question. Um, there's there's certainly not equal. There's about just under twenty thousand brokers in this country, or mortgage brokers, and. I'm one of about 50 who've got access to the panel that I have, so certainly there's a lot of brokers out there that don't have access to all the lenders. The whole of market so, point, yeah. Yeah, I mean even some whole, whole of market, um, there's a lot of brokers out there who hardly see any investor applications, they don't do much buy to let, they don't understand the HMO market, a lot of them don't understand commercial finance or know what commercial finance is and a lot of the lenders will only accept applications from brokers so whilst there's nothing to stop anybody going direct to a lender if that, if that lender will accept them then you know, from a broker's point of view we're on the client's side 
we act for the client, we know what the lender wants, but more importantly, we know what we don't want, what we don't like. Not all lenders are the same as well, so what might be a no-no for one lender might be perfectly acceptable to somebody else. So say, we are on the side of the client, we know all the published criteria of each lender, and we also know the, the information that's not published, and more importantly as well, the service levels of each lender. For example, if you're buying a property now, and you want to complete, say, within four to six weeks, some lenders can comfortably do that um, on the six-week side. Others, it might be more two to three months. So it's, it's really very difficult for you to understand all that unless you do it on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah, I know. And there's a, you know, sometimes a fee to pay, but people shy away from paying that fee. But you're kind of demonstrating that there's a there's a value. Uh, you know, to have that information. You just illustrated it by, you know, I've had a number of mortgage applications over recent years and I haven't been asked for a copy of my SA302, but um, it sounds quite probable that it will be in the future. So that's a change, isn't it, um, that you're on top of? You see probably dozens, if not hundreds, of, uh, of applications. Yes, and, and quite often you know, the lenders that ask for that kind of information is the best lender for your circumstance. Mm. So, you know, if, if a lender doesn't want it, then it might be a higher rate. Um, unfortunately, you know, m most brokers that I deal with, because I also have brokers as clients, are very, very good. Unfortunately, like any industry, some are also quite lazy. Mm -hmm. but, um, certainly, by all means, if you've got a bank account with one of the high street banks and they're offering very good rates, then go with them. As, as long as they can service what your requirements are within your time scale. For say several lenders, you, you've got to go through a broker to access them. And most of the new ones also go down that route as well. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of using brokers. I think there's a lot of value in, in, the, in, in the service they offer and you're illustrating those points quite well. You know, understanding service standards, changing products all the time, um, different criteria. And that kind of leads me on a little bit is that what are the potential uh, pitfalls to that the investor landlords can, you know, be aware of in terms of getting approved for lending and how, how best can they position themselves towards a lender so that they, they have a successful application? Because, of course, an unsuccessful application can carry some uh, negative, uh, for you know, pain, like I say negativity as well going forward, can't it? It can. I mean, certainly to prepare yourself, as I've mentioned, to have all the information available, and to also know about what you're buying or what you want to remortgage as well. Because there's three stages to the process of an application. There's the individual, and if it's a company application, then they'll add that to it as well. So it's understanding, you know, what your credit files like. As I said before, you know the bank statements, etc. The third part, which is after you've spent a considerable amount of money on the valuation, normally, is the solicitor's side. So, do you have the right solicitor to be understand property? If you're going down the bridging route, then to be understand that as well. And the bit in the middle where a lot of things fall down is the actual property or land itself. Is there anything near it that may upset a lender's valuer? For example, is it near commercial and shops? Mm. Is it near fast food? Has it got an electricity panel in the back garden, which you've seen recently? <laughs> uh, does it have sort of 250-year-old trees in the front garden that may be affecting 
the drainage and th th there's all those items to look at so certainly do your own research always go and view the property have a look around have a look in the back garden or backyard uh, to make sure there's nothing like Japanese knotweed which is becoming more and more common um, if somebody's done a lot of gardening recently and things seem to be chopped and maybe pay particular attention to that make sure nobody's trying to hide anything and you know if you're using a broker give all the information that the broker asks for as well um, which does vary considerably I'm aware of many people that don't even talk about the property but uh, if there's an issue the lender's value will find it out and you've spent good money already which will be wasted couldn't agree with more one of those to add to the list and you know it's quite topical is floods as well flood risk um you know, is, is, and you can look at you can look that up from the Environment Agency um, website, can't you? But uh, the it is, and um, what I was going to talk about is, is some of the things that possibly cause issues further down the line. Planning permission is really important, especially for sort of HMOs. If you're doing any kind of conversion work, to have building regulations, and if you are in the flood risk area, then to make sure that your insurance cover covers floods as well because all these things are towards the end of a transaction uh, which sometimes people forget about or the solicitors don't concentrate the efforts and you've got a deadline sometimes that can be the difference between meeting it or not meeting it I think it's interesting that you've elevated the importance of a good solicitor there actually and, um, and perhaps people don't pay, pay so much attention to that when they're we're thinking about their, their sort of their team that they have on board but you're kind of making the point that they really do. It's not just the cheapest conveyancer that you could find. It's uh, it's someone who's got some experience of handling property and uh, can help you avoid some of these issues before they arise. Yeah, very much so, especially with commercial finance and limited company finance as well, because quite often the lender will have their own solicitor who will be dealing with yours. So if your solicitor doesn't have experience of dealing with a lender solicitor, then sometimes there can be problems. Mm. And it's, it's just another level of stress that can, can come into the transaction, which isn't really needed. It's funny, actually. And make sure they've got... Sorry, Simon. Carry on. So I was going to say, just make sure they've got that experience. If somebody's in court in the morning doing the will at night and is fitting the conveyance in, in sort of between two and four in the afternoon, then probably not the firm to deal with. Good advice. Um, it's funny when you talked earlier about um, property close to commercial premises or restaurants. I had, a, I had one of our podcast listeners might even be listening, you know, to this interview now, and um, he'd gone as far as submitting application using a broker um, and then getting rejected because he was looking to purchase a flat above a Chinese takeaway, and the broker didn't advise him that that might be a problem with this particular lender. So. It, it just makes makes. I, I won't ask you to comment, but really, a, a good broker should have uh, warned him. Presumably, he knew. Uh, if he didn't know, then obviously that's uh, totally understandable. But it is uh, it goes back to the point of knowing what criteria are going to work for which lender. And oh, definitely. I mean, there's certain things where the bells go off, and if the lender's published criteria doesn't show it, then you should be ringing them up and finding out. That application should never have gone in. Yeah, I know. Feel for them. So we just moving on. We've been talking about cycles quite a lot over the course of this particular series, and um, there's definitely been uh, some cycles in the in terms of financing as well, haven't there? Over recent times, you would think about 
the uh, the credit crunch and the global financial crisis, things like uh, the mortgage market review. The, you know, would you say there's types of lending which have perhaps suited the different stages in the cycle, and, and in particular, what might be suitable or unsuitable at this stage? Would you say? Well, certainly the, the, the MMR did cause issues initially by reducing the number of lenders that are out there. Um, we've got another one at the moment which is going to be published, so it has to be done by March 2016, uh, which is an EU directive which won't affect investor landlords too much. It's just resulting in new documentation. But because of that, um, a lot of product development just isn't around at the moment. So what you've got is sort of a traditional loans that are out there. So certainly one thing that I've seen a lot of over the last two to three years is refurbishment by select mortgages. Mm -hmm. So rather than just go down the bridging route, you have a, a long-term loan which will allow you to do quite a, a fair amount to a property. On the on the cycles, all the issues that I saw around the credit crunch were when in commercial finance the, the loans were only for three to five years and when it came for repayment that lender didn't want to renew and with the banks they still do that so I would certainly say that you need to go for long-term finance uh, to take that issue away from you. Certainly one good thing about the recent cycles is that we've, to me we've got the biggest choice of lenders ever. Mm -hmm. More lenders are coming in. More lenders are looking at coming into the HMO market. Certainly with higher prices you've got lower yields. So people are looking to, to increase the yield by HMOs etc. So again, we've got lenders who are looking to come into that sector. One thing that we've seen recently is the tax changes mm. and stamp duty and mortgage relief. So therefore, more lenders, the tradi traditional buy-to-let lenders, are now looking at what they're going to do about limited company finance. And some of them have done it in the past, but pulled out of the market. So they're looking at coming back in. So there's going to be more choice for people going forward. Great stuff, isn't it? I suppose um, spinning the conversation around a little bit, um, you know, pro, you know, trying to wear your hat for a minute. What, what do we do as landlord investors that can drive either you or indeed the lenders mad or potty at times? <laughs> what are our right, bad habits? Um, <laughs> well, how many hours have I got? Um, <laughs> there's nothing really that investors do that make me mad because everybody's very different. Some are great at paperwork, others aren't. Certainly plenty of lenders make me mad and with some of the processes and systems. I mean, you know, some of the lenders still work off fax machines, for example. From, from a relationship point of view, I would say give everything to the broker that we asked for. Don't drip feed it. If they ask for three-month statements, don't provide two months because you're away on holiday and you had a bounced item and you're trying to hide it from the broker, it will come out. So provide all the information at the beginning, talk to them about the property, what it's like, what the area is like, etc. And if there's any forms that the broker asks you to complete, go through them and complete them all fully. Don't just miss things out because you don't want to go and find that information. All that information is there for a reason 
because the lender wants it. So as I said, there's nothing really that makes me mad. It's just getting all the information up front quickly, and those transactions happen quickly as well. If you drag the information out, then the application process gets dragged out as well. And what I touched on earlier, make sure you've got the right insurance in place at the rebuildings cover that the lender's value assess. If you've done an extension on the property, or it's had one, make sure you've got the planning permission, building regulations, etc. And a good broker should identify the issues that you potentially may have and guide you t t towards solving those be before they become a big problem. Great stuff. Um, the other thing I'm conscious, I, I have a bit of a, a bit of a beef here myself, um, taking a slightly in a different direction, but are there any sort of gotchas or no-goes in terms of financing? I, I always talk about having the right finance solution for the right project. Uh, and, and you know, I've often heard of people being given advice, actually, in inverted commas, to you know maybe have a residential mortgage when their intention is to let or or even vice versa which i know you've probably got a view on that you just talk us through what 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 are the you know go no go areas what shouldn't you really be doing as far as far as finance product uh, and the pro and the project's concerned a mortgage is long-term finance so therefore if you're going to buy a property and sell it then you don't need a mortgage it's cash or bridging finance i am aware that that people try and get mortgages and then hopefully with no early repayment penalties. Um, if, if you're applying for, for, for any kind of mortgage and you're trying to manipulate or you're hiding things from the lender, etc., unfortunately, whichever way you, you want to look at it is mortgage fraud. So if you're buying a property that you're going to convert into a HMO, it's not just the right product for it. If you're looking at refurbishing and then keeping, then these are refurbishment mortgages that are out there, as well as bridging finance as well. Lenders do check, and quite rightly, credit files. They look at when mortgages are taken out, and they look at when mortgages are repaid. And if a lender sees that you're using long-term finance on a short-term basis, then that lender will blacklist you internally and possibly even put you in a fraud database as well, which will mean that you won't get a mortgage application ever again. So it's got to be the right product. And even if you mention it to your broker and the broker's happy with it, then it doesn't necessarily make it right because a lot of brokers are, are completely unaware of what the rules and guidelines are from the lenders. So if it's short, if it's something, if it's a flip, it's cash or bridging. If it's long term, it's a buy to let mortgage. And if you're going to do any types of work, then you need to ask the mortgage lender's permission. If they give you permission, great. If they don't give you permission, then you need to go elsewhere to find somebody that will. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And your point about blacklist and mortgage fraud, you know, a lot of people kind of sweep under the carpet and think it's not real, but but it is real. And I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, one, of, one of the points I actually wanted to make in this whole discussion is probably financing is probably the most important, uh, our, you know, weapon that we have as a property investor. So we don't really want to be jeopardizing our ability to raise finance, do we? No, not at all. And say that there's plenty of lenders. They all speak to each other. Uh, there's databases all over the place. 
and once you take a mortgage out with a lender, that's not the end of the relationship. They monitor what happens to that property. They know its value on a monthly basis. They monitor planning permissions, etc. They monitor HMO license applications. There's lots of things they will do. So you need to make certain that you're on the right product. Yeah, and I believe some are now monitoring social media as well. So um, watch out what you say. <laughs> right. So um, the the other thing I just wanted to ask you is how do, how do, you know how does the average investor you know maybe just buying one property every now and again how do they make sense of all the different offerings you've got different interest rates you've got upfront fees you've got redemption charges what's the best way for people to kind of make sense of all that and make a good decision of what's right for them? Firstly, I think you need to work out what you like and what you don't like. Do you want something that's the cheapest on a monthly basis? Do you want something that's the lowest cost over a period of time? Quite often, low interest rates mean high fees. So if you're looking for cash flow, then a lower interest product might be suitable. Do you want a variable rate? Do you want a fixed rate? If interest rates go up by 1, 2, 3%, etc., what effect will it have on your personal circumstances? So it's understanding all that. And certainly when you're speaking to your broker, because what a lot of people will do is they'll key the information in the broker into a sourcing system and it will produce a list of lenders and most will automatically go for the one with the lowest monthly payment. But over a period of say two, three, five years, that might be the more expensive compared to others that are further down the list. So one thing that I would always say is ask for a total to pay over a period of time and then you can compare all the costs as well. Um, there's a lot of two-year fixed rates in the market, but there's also three and five years as well. So again, if, if somebody's saying these are the best products as in a two-year fixed, ask them about the other ones that are out there and make a decision between them. But quite often I'll get asked, well, what's your advice? But I do need some help as in what your attitude is to increasing interest rates, etc. So it's a reasonably straightforward way to compare one to another if you ask for the total payable over a period of time. Yeah, total cost of financing is sort of uh, some. Um, it's funny, actually, the whole two-year argument. I, unless you're planning to maybe sell that property on or, or you know, raise more money against it perhaps in a couple of years, um, I'm not sure that a two-year financing is really that great because you often got fees, a whole bunch of fees again every couple of years. Oh, you have, yeah. I mean, for example, there's a 10-year fixed rate which is below 5%. So if you're going to keep a property long-term, it's very good. But no, over a 10-year period to remortgage every every two years, you've got five lots of fees on the end of the mortgage, mm. which you're paying interest on. One thing that I'd also look at as well is the time scale, and to tell to tell the broker or the lender when you need to complete by. If it's a remortgage, when you need the money. If it's a chain as a purchase when that lender needs to be able to complete because quite often the lower rates are some of the slowest lenders. Not always, but uh, if there's a headline rate that somebody brings in and everybody piles into it, then you might not be able to complete if you need to do it within, say, four to six weeks. Great, great advice. Thanks. And uh, I suppose starting to draw to a bit of a close, um, I normally like to ask our guests if there's any way, you know, anything special for our the Property Voice listeners that you might have available. Is there, is anything that you want to share with our listeners in that respect, Simon? Yeah, happy to. 
on a quarterly basis, I, I send out to my existing clients uh, an update, which gives tips on finance, information on lenders, what lenders like, what lenders don't like, etc. So I'm happy to provide that to, to your listeners, and also for people looking to remortgage, I've negotiated a special rate, a fixed fee, for property that's owned personally, buy to let up to a million pounds of value, which is 375. So again, that's available for remortgages for your listeners as well. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. So uh, anybody wants to take up that offer if they mention the property voice and uh, and how should they get in touch with you? The phone number is 01565-654-005. You can email me at simon at searchlightfinance.co.uk and I'm also on Facebook and LinkedIn so you can find me there as well. And I can vouch for the fact that you're very, very active in the property community, Simon. I see you uh, on forums and in, in the social media, very, very active and you very, you know, share your, your information and your wisdom very freely, which uh, you're also doing in the course of this, uh, this interview. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Richard. No problem at all. And, um, and in fact, you are one of the brokers that I recommend. Um, so I wanted to add that as a personal endorsement. But um, So if anyone wants to get in touch with Simon, you can do that. Alternatively, you can always reach out to me, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net, and I'll put you in, uh, in direct touch with, uh, with Simon as well, and you can take advantage of those offers. But I kind of just want to say thanks very much, Simon. Again, I've picked up new things from talking to you again. We've spoken a few times, exchanged notes several times. And I've picked up even new information, so you're obviously on top of things. So really appreciate that coming on the show today and sharing your experience and your knowledge with our listeners. So thank you. Okay, thanks, Richard. You're welcome. Talk to you soon. Take care. Now, I think the discussion with Simon highlighted some of the key reasons why I always suggest dealing with a finance broker and indeed one that specialises in investment property. For example, he mentioned the fact that many lenders are now asking for the SA302 from HMRC well before the January online filing deadline, deadline rather, which no doubt many of us will normally be working towards with our tax returns. I certainly was, as you heard from that discussion. In other words, they should be up to date with current lender requirements. In addition, I like the way Simon broke down the requirements of lenders between the bridging finance companies and then all the rest. You see, bridging lenders are more interested in the business case and especially the exit strategy for an individual investment, along with the property's value. And to a lesser extent, they are also interested in the borrower, although this is more secondary. Whereas with all the other forms of lending that, uh, that we discussed, the borrower underwriting is where the lender usually starts, and that's why so much emphasis is placed on credit rating, personal circumstances and the like. Now, I was really pleased when Simon clearly advised us to avoid, avoid using long-term finance, such as mortgages, for short-term projects like flips. I hear so many people suggest people do this because it is possible, you know, to some extent it's possible, and it's supposedly, in inverted commas, cheap. However, I th you know, if you think about it for a minute, why would a long-term lender be satisfied with, by their standards at least, a relatively small setup fee and a reduced interest receipt in cash terms for a, say, 6-12 to month project? 
If you understand finance company profitability in any way, it doesn't make any sense for them to do that. And that's why they will eventually look to close this route down uh, with, with the borrowers that appear, at least uh, appear to be abusing it. And let's not forget that while, say, one mortgage lender may turn a blind eye for a while, perhaps even having low or no early redemption charges, <clears throat> they may have an ulterior motive, which could be to grow their market share or indeed attract customers. But it's a very short-term uh, trail that they're on. And once they've, uh, once they've achieved that, they may close it down. Equally, the other lenders that are out there, the other mainstream buy-to-let lenders, of course, have got full visibility, as Simon illustrated, by having access to when we took out a mortgage and when we redeemed it through the, the imprints that are left on our credit file. If one, of the, if one of the other lenders that's out there in the mainstream marketplace refuses to deal with us, then we should be concerned about that. In fact, we should be more concerned about that. And indeed, the turn a blind eye lender may well close uh, close the door, the backdoor route to this short-term financing method as well at some point. In which case, we're going to be left high and dry with no backdoor short-term blind eye lender, and certainly no mainstream lender as well. Um, if if we're starting to do this on any regular sort of basis, so I think the watchword is to stay away, really. And um, as I keep saying many times, access to finance is possibly one of the biggest aspects of being a successful property investor. But moving on, when considering financing any property, there were three key phases that we need to be concerned about that, that Simon illustrated quite well. The first was how we are presented and underwritten personally, and, and that applies equally if we're looking at setting up financing for a limited company, because the lender's going to look straight through at us as individuals behind that entity in any case. And this highlighted the need, the need to have our affairs in order for some time well in advance of when we intend to seek finance and become what I call lender ready. The second was to look at the property itself and its condition, its value and its marketability in both sales and rental terms. And this highlights that the lender will, will undertake their own due diligence by their own standards. Uh, such as having a minimum rental coverage above the mortgage payments and having that stress tested at an arbitrary interest rate of say 5%, 6% or even 7% depending on the lender concerned. So it's looking at it from their perspective as much as from ours. The third area is the legal aspects of the sale, which includes matters like title, legal title, restrictive covenants, risks such as flood, subsidence, knotweed and so on. And this highlights that Often what limits a, profits, uh, sorry, a property's asset value and marketability are legal factors and other risks that may not be immediately apparent when we view a property. It also demonstrates the requirement to have a good legal team in place ourselves. Simon made reference to the overall property cycle and how finance products and offerings can change as the cycle also changes. We talked about the Mortgage Market Review, or the MMR, which primarily affecting owner-occupiers has also had a, an, uh, an impact rather on buy-to-let sector, perhaps indirectly. Then there's the global financial crisis, which put the brakes on high loan-to-value lending, perhaps wisely. But uh, however, more recently, we've got events such as the government's tax changes that are making limited company lending more broad-based and new entrants into the lending sector, looking at offering both development and refurbish, uh, sorry, refurbishment finance products on a wider scale now as well. I think the overarching recommendation we learn from all this 
to, is to be thorough and complete in the information we share with our broker. And more than this, we need to get ourselves lender ready, as I referred to earlier, well in, well in advance of when we think we need to be. This could be sometimes six months before we need to apply for, for a loan uh, with a clean and accurate credit report, uh, bank statements with no obvious issues, all the necessary approvals and permissions in place, and of course the HMRC tax return or SA302 reports uh, ready to hand as well. Now, if you wanted to take advantage of Simon's offers that he mentioned in our discussion to receive his quarterly update and the special remortgage offer that he mentioned, then either contact him directly. Our website to um, the show, and for the show notes for today's episode has his contacts on there. Or just drop me an email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net right away, and I'll make sure you get them instead. Up next is your voice. It's all about you and your property world. Now, your voice uh, for this week, I've got a bit of a request of you. In addition to the series format that I'm following clearly now on the Property Voice podcast, I also have some smaller topics and top of mind thoughts, which I share through my shorter musing episodes as well. So my ask of you is this, what subjects or themes would you like me to cover on the show? So it could be a big theme or a topic Uh, to cover in a series format. That could be something like property financing, which I'm planning a whole series on in uh, in the future. Or it could be a shorter topic or or subject area, which could be suitable for one of my one-off musing episode formats instead. For example, lease options or my latest deals or that type of thing. Just, you know, whatever's on your mind, really. It matters not. All I want to know is what you would like to hear more of. So if you could uh, let me know, uh, drop me a quick email, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net with your ideas of topics, themes or other content for the show. I will do my best to incorporate it into the schedule for you. Thank you. And now where you can go for more great resources with a shout out. As you may already be aware, I am an avid reader. (laughs) Now, last year, I had a reading challenge that focused primarily on volume of new material uh, quite a lot. And and this year, I want to uh, plan a a bit of a mix and match approach to my reading a little bit more. And so I'll be revisiting certain books to reread and adopt these into my daily practices, routine and indeed my psyche. And also be on the hunt for new material as well. And to assist me in the hunt for new material, I've been looking at a number of services that offer book summaries. And there's several out there that I've found, and they vary in style, content, and indeed cost. However, one that I found to be pretty useful, for my purposes at least, is Blinklist. One word, Blinklist. Now, I quite like Blinklist as A, it seems to be more affordable than many of the other book summary services that are out there. And B, it offers bite-sized book summaries that uh, cover the salient points within a 15-minute read time. And this allows me to get an overview of lots of different books in a short period of time. And then I can decide which ones I want to go on and read in full, you know, buy myself and read in full. So it's a good bridge, if you like, that I can quickly check the whether a book I think is suitable for me or not. Now, there's a free version of Blinklist that supports the options, um, I think, um, one book a day, and it's a Blinklist uh, choice of what book you get to read. But you can give it a try that way. 
However, there's some paid-for subscriptions, and they're very reasonable. Uh, one of them has an unlimited number of book summaries that you can read from their library, and equally, it has an audio version. So as a podcast listener, you can get your fill of more great audio content through, I can't even say it now, through Blinklist book summaries in an audio format as well. So that's my shout out for today, Blinklist, the book summary reading app. Give it a go and uh, let me know how you get on with it. So there we go. That's another episode of the Property Voice podcast in the bag. Next week, we'll be drilling down a little bit more into the subject of financing our property acquisitions. And we'll also have a look at some of the alternative and indeed creative financing methods that are available in addition to the mainstream lending routes as well, which has been the subject primarily that we've talked about today. So don't forget, drop me an email personally with your suggested topics for the show, podcast at thepropertyvoice.net. And meanwhile, the show notes are going to be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. But all that remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening today. Now head over to thepropertyvoice.net for more inspirational content and get updates through our mailing list. Join us next time on the Property Voice podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes.